a cell in the body of God? Is there a connection between spiritual transcendence and globalist control? This is an essay by Josh Middeldorf in two parts. Charles Eisenstein calls it the age of separation. For several thousand years of recorded history, human institutions and human behaviors, even human perceptions, have been organized around the idea that we are separate individuals. The dominance of Western over Eastern and indigenous cultures, enlightenment science, and capitalism especially, have intensified the dominance of this Weltanschauung so that to most of us, the idea that I am a separate individual human seems self-evident. Many people who have had experiences of samadhi or kundalini or near-death out-of-body or psychedelic revelations report that for a short time, it becomes tangibly apparent to them that separation is an illusion. I'm drawn to reading these accounts, but I've never had an experience of this sort myself. This essay is an experiment in reaching beyond my individual self via the mental faculty alone. Is it obvious that a change in so fundamental a paradigm from I am a separate individual to a non-dual perspective changes everything about psychology, about morality, politics, biology, physical cosmology? We live in an age when central government is becoming rapidly more controlling. Beliefs, behaviors are homogenizing worldwide, and there's a visible movement for creating a global order. Is this then humanity's destiny for all of our species to become hypersocial like an ant colony? Section one, the greatest good for the greatest number. In my freshman year of college, I took a survey course with readings from all the great philosophers. I scratched my head and wondered where Plato got his implausible ontology. I read St. Augustine as mired in the absurd doctrine of original sin. I read Kant as abstraction piled on abstraction, dancing around the essence. But when we got to John Stuart Mill, I felt like I was coming home. Yes, this is clearly the right answer. For Mill and for my freshman self, society is a collection of autonomous individuals. Happiness of the individual is the ultimate good. What constitutes happiness? In Mill's own words, pleasure and freedom from pain are the only things desirable as ends, end quote. Societies are formed via Locke's social contract. Individuals voluntarily exchange some of their autonomy for a rule-based order in the context of which they can thrive as individuals better than they could on their own. Essential to the system of thought is that there is no God-given morality, no platonic good, no religion within the limits of reason alone. Pleasure is an individual thing, and the only rational way to define collective good is as an aggregation of individual pleasure. Hence, the greatest good for the greatest number was Jeremy Bentham's mantra, adopted by John Stuart Mill and articulated as a coherent political philosophy. I thought at the time that this philosophy was rationality itself and that I had come upon it by my own individual powers of reasoning. Much later, 
did I start to realize that I had acquired the utilitarian dogma by osmosis from the assumptions implicit in the pronouncements of grown-ups from whom I had learned. Today, I believe that psychology is transpersonal, that telepathy is happening all the time, that the thoughts in my mind do not necessarily come sui generis from my brain, that the psychological ills that our culture treats as chemical imbalances in the brain are more usefully seen as sociological dysfunction, that, that happiness itself is a collective attribute of a family or community, maybe of Gaia. Section 2. Major Transitions in Evolution We think of a biological individual as an objective category, but the notion of an individual is an evolutionary variable. An individual paramecium engages in a struggle for existence like any other being. Lacrimaria is a hunter that senses its prey, extends a neck out to retrieve it, explores vulnerable angles, and strategizes about how to ingest, all without a brain or a nervous system. Lacrimaria is a single cell. But a cell of comparable size and complexity may be part of your body, given over to serving the welfare of a larger unit. These cells are specialized to provide structure, bone cells, or to transduce signals, nerve cells, or to filter toxins, liver cells. Each may be as good at what it does as lacrimaria is at hunting bacteria, but they have pooled their impressive and diverse talents in service to a collective entity, an individual operating at a higher level of organization. Every second, four million of your cells die and are replaced by others. Most of these are blood cells, most of the rest are lining of the stomach and intestine, but there is substantial turnover in the skin and bones as well. You don't think anything of it. You're the same person because your identity depends on the relationship among many cells and not on the cells themselves. John Maynard Smith distilled and formalized the mathematical principles of evolutionary theory in the mid-20th century. His book on Major Transitions in Evolution describes the history of life on Earth as the hierarchical assembly of functionalist systems at ever higher levels of integration. Life began with molecules that could reproduce themselves, but this was quickly subsumed by hypercycles, different molecules which mutually catalyzed the formation of new copies of one another. The hypercycles collected into cells, and cells aggregated as bacterial films working their chemistry together. Then, only after three billion years, the cells began to pool their destinies in multicellular animals and plants. David Sloan Wilson theorized about levels of selection in evolution. Individuals are allied in communities that become powerful reproductive units in their own right, and communities are parts of ecosystems that are, in their own way, greater than the sum of their parts. Our living world is only partway through each of these transitions, so that evolution takes place on many levels at once. Selfish genes, selfish individuals, selfish communities arrayed in selfish 
ecosystems that compete for space and resources with other entire ecosystems. Parenthetically, I think of the origin of life on Earth as a major scientific mystery, and Maynard Smith's premise is only the most conservative hypothesis. We have yet to imagine a plausible mechanism, and in fact, it seems from our lab work and some simple computation that the simplest self-reproducing molecule is far too complex to have arisen by chance, even with the most optimistic assumptions. End of aside. Nevertheless, the idea that life has become more complex and integrated at ever higher levels seems sound to me. Eusociality is the word biologists use to describe tightly evolved communities where every individual has a role to play, and the individual's life purpose, her very existence, becomes subrogated to the hive. Douglas Hofstadter describes an anthill as a living, conscious being. Each individual ant may be playing a role by rote, acting in a way that is derivable from simple rules. She may have no more consciousness than a nerve cell in the human brain, but collectively the anthill acts with intelligence and direction. In an imagined dialogue between an anteater and Achilles, Achilles expresses amazement that the ants were part of a higher-level pattern without being conscious of it. Typical of Hofstadter's consummate cleverness, at this point in the dialogue, Achilles is an illustration of the same phenomenon. Anteater discusses how individual ants are communistic, but Aunt Hillary herself is a rich libertarian. Aunt Hillary has goals and strategies for reaching those goals, the hallmarks of a conscious agent. Section 3, Living Ecosystems Up until a few years ago, biologists thought that a tree farm was the same as a forest. A concept of a tree was an individual, independent plant that grows tall in order to hog more of the sunlight, food for growth, denying access to the plants underneath for selfish ends. Thanks to the work of Suzanne Simard, we know now that the forest is an ecosystem, and trees nourish one another through networks of fungal filaments, mycelia. Trees grow tall not because of a runaway competition to grab more sunlight, but because the highest leaves can capture mists that float high above the forest and turn the humidity into precipitation that benefits all. A tree farm is a pathological perversion of a forest in which trees really do grow straight up to compete for sunlight. But the natural destiny of a tree, its highest calling, is to participate in a forest ecosystem. Perhaps it makes sense to think of a forest ecosystem as an individual on a higher level of organization, as yet not completely differentiated. The many species that make up a forest ecosystem have pooled their resources and talents and have linked their destinies, but only partially. It may be that the ecosystem is an individual in the process of differentiation that is not yet evolutionarily complete. I've written about natural selection that operates at the ecosystem level, citing evidence that demographic homeostasis is a collective good, an essential component of fitness in the context of evolutionary competition, 
ecosystem versus ecosystem. In other words, ecosystems must be robust in the face of varying environments, and the ecosystem can't afford for any one species to indulge in runaway growth that throws the system into imbalance. We see examples of natural birth control, territoriality, and aging as evolutionary programs that seem to make no sense in the context of selfish gene theory. We can interpret all these altruistic phenomena as taxes that the individual pays in order to benefit from a stable ecosystem. Biophilia is a concept introduced by E.O. Wilson, a sense of kinship that we feel across species lines. We relate to dogs as family members. Craig Foster bonded with an octopus with daily visits over a period of a year, and the octopus bonded with Craig. This video documents a manifest friendship between a dog and an elephant. Robert Frost wrote a poem about recognizing selfhood in a mite. None of these cross-species relationships can be explained in the context of evolutionary theory that is confined to fitness of individuals. They speak of relationships that transcend evolutionary competition between individuals and even between species. They speak of ecosystems as integrated biological entities. And this is Robert Frost's poem titled, A Considerable Speck. A speck that would have been beneath my sight on any but a paper sheet so white, set off across what I had written there. I had idly poised my pen in air to stop it with a period of ink when something strange about it made me think this was no dust speck by my breathing blown, but unmistakably a living mite with inclinations it could call its own. It paused as with suspicion of my pen, and then came racing wildly on again to where my manuscript was not yet dry, then paused again and either drank or smelt with loathing, for again it turned to fly, plainly with an intelligence I dealt. It seemed too tiny to have room for feet, yet must have had a set of them complete to express how much it didn't want to die. It ran with terror and with cunning crept, it faltered. I could see it hesitate, then, in the middle of the open sheet, cower down in desperation to accept whatever I accorded it of fate. I have none of the tenderer-than-thou collectivist regimenting love with which the modern world is being swept, but this poor microscopic item now, since it was nothing I knew evil of, I let it lie there till I hope it slept. I have a mind myself and recognize mind when I meet with it in any guise. No one can know how glad I am to find on any sheet the least display of mind. End of Robert Frost's poem and of part one of my essay, A Cell in the Body of God.